What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome and thank you for joining us today for our Vital Signs 2022 launch and Vital Conversation on the Environment. Now I'd like to introduce Dr. Jerry White, Chair of our Vital Science Committee, who will share some highlights about this report. Oh, thanks, Martha. Welcome, everybody. It's uh, so good to see such a large group of people excited and interested in learning more about the environment and the environmental crisis. Today, we look at environmental issues that impact our region and our city, ourselves and our world. We have an amazing group of panelists, but before I turn over the chair to Marianne Colahan, I wanna draw your attention to our new Vital Signs report. We call this report, Be the Change London. And we call it that because it shines a light on the challenges facing our city and our region. But even more importantly, it calls on all of us, individuals and organizations to address those challenges. We call on people to be part of the movement for change not just say, yes, it exists, but actually take steps to try and mitigate these challenges and make this city and this region a better place for all the brothers and sisters that live here. I'm not gonna go through some of the environmental findings because our guest panelists are going much more, have much more expertise. The only thing I would say is that what we say in Vital Signs is that the environment is integral, uh, intricately interconnected with all the other uh, issues and challenges. And so we need to work on environmental issues. We need to do that to end hunger. We need to do that to help uh, people who are marginalized because they suffer from environmental depredation even more. So let me introduce you to our very own Marianne Callahan. Marianne Callahan is a longtime volunteer with the London Community Foundation. She's a member of our vital science team and an advisor on environmental issues from our environmental advisory group. She teaches creative writing at Western Continuing Studies, and you should keep your eyes open because she's offering a nature writing class in spring 2023. I thought I'd just put that in there. Uh, she's a member of uh, the Society of Environmental Journalists, and we are so thankful that you are willing to moderate our panel today. And I'm gonna turn it over to you. Thank you, Jerry, so much for that excellent introduction to the Vital Signs Report. That was, that was marvelous. I would like to start by introducing you to our panelists today. Um, and Professor Franco Baruti started his academic career at the University of Calgary and became a full professor in 1992, an associate dean of research and graduate studies in 1994. He served as Dean of Engineering at the University of Saskatchewan and then moved to Western, where he held that position until 2008. He is the founding director of the Institute for Chemicals and Fuels from Alternative Resources, ICFAR, at Western, very well named, and he currently holds the NSERC Industrial Research Chair in Thermochemical Conversion of Biomass and Waste to Bioindustrial Resources, co-sponsored by 11 industrial organizations. He's an accomplished and internationally recognized researcher with experience in chemical reacting, reactor technologies, thermal cracking, conversion of heavy oils and biomass and plastic wastes 
into value-added fuels and chemicals. I'd also like to welcome Teresa Hollingsworth. She is the Manager of Community and Corporate Services for the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority. She has been involved in environmental programming and community education and awareness efforts for over 30 years. Teresa obtained her undergraduate degree from the University of Waterloo and her MPA from Western University. She's a proud member of the London Community Foundation Board and Nicole, Nicole Karsh. She holds an honors specialization in social justice and peace studies from King's University College and a master's in environmental sustainability from Western. She is currently the vice chair of the City of Sarnia's Environmental Advisory Committee and is a published author in an international journal for sustainable development. Nicole works at the London Environmental Network, managing the organization's residential sustainability program, Greener Homes London. Greener Homes provides resources, guidance, and tools to residents in London and the surrounding area to assist them with reducing their environmental impact at home. Her social justice and environmental sustainability background drives her to help offer services that consider energy equity and actively tries to incorporate everyone, especially traditionally underserved and underrepresented groups and communities. I wanna thank all of you for taking your valuable time today to speak with us. And if we have time after our panel discussions, we will take questions from the audience. So I'd like to kick it off. We have three groups of questions and um, we are, are mixing up the response, you know, who responds in, in what order. Uh, so for this very first question, we will start with Nicole, then go to Franco and then to Teresa. And the question is, what do you believe is one of the most pressing environmental issues that our community faces today, and why is it important? So, Nicole, if you could kick us off. Thank you, Marianne. So, I recently moved back to London um, after living in a considerably smaller city, and I've been thinking quite often about one of the major ramifications of vast expansion that comes with growing cities everywhere, and the addition of so much new infrastructure, um, and that's the increase in heat islands. So heat islands are pockets um, generally found in urban areas. So we think of areas in the city that are dense with houses, commercial buildings, bridges, railways, et cetera, where these types of structures are highly concentrated and green space and tree canopy cover is limited. So these man-made structures, they absorb, and then they re-emit the sun's heat more than natural landscapes do. And in turn, they become islands of higher temperatures relative to outlying areas. And when I consider extreme weather events um, and this increase in hot temperatures, places such as the cities downtown are experiencing some of the hottest temperatures ever recorded, um, which means that the individuals that are living and working there are experiencing amplified heat uh, due to the lack of shade and moisture that natural landscapes help to provide. And research states, um, and Jerry touched on this a little bit earlier too, um, that people in low-income households, seniors, children, people living alone, and visible minorities are more impacted and they're more vulnerable than others by heat islands. And with climate models projecting that Canada's urban centers are going to see a dramatic increase in the annual number of extremely hot days, I find that really scary um, as that's just a recipe for extreme social suffering. 
Nicole, thank you. Franco, you're next. Um, okay. I mean, we are facing lots of uh, different environmental issues and they're all important. Um, air and water quality, waste management, climate change. Um, I always uh, think of London as a privileged community because we have lots of trees, we have river parks, uh, we don't have uh, heavy polluting industries. Uh, so this is a, a good pos position to be in. But um, uh, many things uh, can be done to improve. Uh, and uh, I believe that right now the most pressing environmental issue is the need to educate the entire community to think about uh, eco-sustainability in uh, relation to anything that we do and to take the appropriate deliberate actions. Uh, we need to experience a cultural change. Uh, I think we need to learn from the best examples that are worldwide. Uh, I, I know many in Northern Europe, like uh, cities like Copenhagen, Helsinki, Stockholm. Uh, because of my work as a university researcher, I'm doing research on tackling waste management as one of the most pressing environmental issues. Um, our research focus is on the elimination of the concept of waste and the transformation of what could be interpreted by many as waste into a useful resource, uh, being that um, energy or chemicals or materials or soil amendments and fertilizers or adsorbents for pollutants. Uh, but also we are uh, working on creating materials that are um, suitable for carbon sequestration. Uh, and finally, another very noticeable environmental issue that I see in London is the heavy traffic. Uh, sometimes uh, we, we need really to, to consider how to, uh, what can be done to alleviate this. And, uh, and we have to develop more efficient and convenient public transportation, bicycle lanes, uh, maybe car sharing and bicycle sharing opportunities. Um, and also we need to walk more. Um, my dream would be to think of uh, making London the most environmentally friendly and smart city in North America. And uh, I believe that we are of a size and we have a population that uh, can really help to, to achieve that. Uh, we have to think of green buildings. We have to think of energy and resource optimization. Uh, we have to think of waste reduction, renewable energy, green spaces, traffic reduction smart buildings, all this is possible. Franco, thank you so much. Teresa, last, you're the, the last, uh, last up. I'm so tempted just to say ditto. Uh, <laughs> I just have agreed with everything so far, um, but I, I guess I'll just add another, a little different lens um, in terms of, you know, uh, pressing environmental issues face, facing our community. I know we all think about climate change and I'd like to talk about climate change and its impact on water. Um, a warming climate increases precipitation variability and meaning there'll be periods of uh, both extreme pre precipitation and drought. So we have this issue of too much water and too little water. And um, in our watershed, we've been experiencing more extreme precipitation events. So rainfall, of over 75 millimeters or three inches over a few hours that will fall in a very localized area. 
this is n very new to us and we don't really have all the systems in place to deal with these types of uh, rainfall events. This type of event creates enormous runoff and that's where the issues begin for us. This runoff can cause flooding, uh, whether it's an urban or a rural setting, overwhelm our municipal stormwater systems. And it forces municipalities to bypass sewage treatment plants in an effort to protect important infrastructure. These runoff events also wash all of the pollution from our yards, driveways, roads into the stormwater system and into the river. And they erode the stream bank and send, send sediment into our river system. Similarly, in a rural setting, stormwater from an extreme precipitation event can carry excess nutrients or fertilizer and sediments into the drain and eventually into the river. These events create a huge pulsing of pollutants to reach the river all at the same time and really have been proven to be the source of some of our biggest water quality issues. At the other end of the spectrum, something that we've been seeing on and off, climate change is causing increased temperature and drought conditions. Warmer temperatures enhance evaporation, uh, which reduces our uh, surface water and dries out soils and vegetation. We've all can think of a time when this that's impacted our own gardens. This makes periods with low precipitation drier than they would be in cooler conditions. We're noticing a decreased snowpack, even if the total amount of annual precipitation remains the same. Many of our water management systems rely on spring snowpack where we here and that melt to help us augment flows all during the summer. And certain ecosystems also depend on snowmelt, which supplies cold water for species like trout. So the issues that are closest to my heart and probably highest on my list are climate change as it relates to water. Okay, thank you so much, Teresa. We're gonna stay with you um, for the individual question section. And I have, um, I'd like to know what are some of the factors that impact water quality in the Thames River watershed? And what do you think are the key action steps that the upper and lower Thames conservation authorities have taken to prevent pollution from heading downstream in the Thames River and into the Great Lakes? Okay. Um... One of the most important factors uh, is the amount of phosphorus that's reaching the Thames River. Uh, phosphorus is the primary nutrient that promotes kind of that excess growth of aquatic plants and algae. So, and as those plants kind of uh, die off and decay, they take all the oxygen with them and then low oxygen, uh, oxygen conditions um, are really harmful to sensitive aquatic organisms and fish. Uh, like fish, including fish. And in recent years, um, phosphorus has also triggered the growth of harmful algal blooms, including, you might have heard in the news, cyanobacteria, species such as microcystis, and it's all these big names, but really it impairs our drinking water. The Great Lakes are our sources for drinking water. It impacts aquatic life, and it also impacts recreational uses. So we think about swimmable and drinkable. And um, phosphorus has a huge impact on those uh, water quality uh, pieces that really impact us personally. I'd also, um, when you talk about other factors impacting water quality in the Thames River, 
I'd have to add the loss of wetlands and other green infrastructure in our natural lands is also impacting water quality. Uh, wetlands work like sponges to hold stormwater and filter pollutants. We're also losing natural land and wetlands. They are under extreme pressure for development. Uh, and when we talk about uh, the things that the conservation authorities are working together to do, uh, just so that people know, the Thames River watershed is the largest watershed in the Lake St. Clair drainage basin, and it comprises about 25% of the Canadian Lake Erie Basin. As a result, we have this very big impact or, or potential to significantly, significantly impact downstream areas like Lake St. Clair and Lake Erie. So we have been focusing on best management practices for both agricultural properties and also urban uh, properties and property owners. So anything that focuses on reducing peak flows, because I talked about those big pulsing of that runoff that's getting those pollutants to the river. So any of those best management practices. So we work with individual uh, landowners and farmers on improving nutrient management, building soil health, uh, slowing the flow of water from the land into the rivers. And um, we have extremely, um, uh, we have wonderful uh, landowners that work with us to um, uh, put these practices into place. Uh, and then we're also involved with stormwater runoff. And so trying to talk to homeowners about creating natural areas that slow down overland flow or provide storage capacity. And I know it sounds simple, but it's as, as simple as rain gardens, but you've seen developers starting to develop communities that incorporate landscape approaches to slow stormwater runoff. They are using low impact development, things like rain gardens and permeable pavements. And across the entire watershed, we're working to maintain those natural heritage features such as wetlands, floodplains, riparian buffers, anything which slow runoff, increase infiltration, and will utilize our nutrients. Teresa, thank you. And Franco, I want to go to you next. And I hope that you could explain to us what paralysis is. That's been a dominant part of your research career, and I think it will be of interest to the audience. And also, can you talk about your collaborative work with the City of London that provides an opportunity to remove PFAs from our water stream? And of course, please tell our audience a bit more about PFAs and why they are called a forever chemical. Ah, lots of questions. Um... Yes, uh, pyrolysis, uh, the, the, the word pyrolysis comes from two Greek words, uh, meaning breaking with fire. However, it's not a combustion. It's a fragmentation of material by action of heat in the absence of oxygen. Uh, what we are doing at the Institute for Chemicals and Fuels from Alternative Resources, ICFAR, is that we use uh, pyrolysis to break the molecules of uh, residual and waste biomass. Um, that comes from um, agricultural and forestry operations, from organic fraction of municipal solid waste, uh, from non-recyclable plastics, from uh, coffee uh, paper cups, from biosolids produced in wastewater treatment plants, uh, from, um, I guess, whatever is a waste uh, or a residue. 
Um, the resulting products can be small fragments and those become gas, intermediate fragments, and they condense into a liquid form. And we call them bio oils or plastic oils or simply pyrolysis oils or larger structures, which uh, are solid. And we call them char or biochar. So our task is to find the value added opportunities for these new products. And there are many, um, such as renewable fuels, specialty chemicals, flavors, natural pesticides, adsorbent materials, um, soil amendment uh, media and fertilizers, and also carbon sequestration. Um, at ICFAR, we collaborate with universities as well as with private and uh, public organizations from all over the world. And of course, uh, we are extensively collaborating with the City of London, and we have a tremendous relationship through Jay Stanford, who is uh, the Director of Climate Change, Environment and Waste Management. And the focus uh, of what we do is the valorization of plastic waste, of biosolids, and of a variety of residual biomasses. And one area of high priority is that of the treatment of emerging pollutants that end up in the water, as well as those uh, uh, that end up segregating and collecting in the biosolids that are generated in the wastewater treatment plants. Among them, there are these PFAS. Uh, they are called PFAS, which stands for perfluoroalkyl substances. They are anthropogenic uh, compounds uh, with uh, fluorinated carbon chains. Uh, they contain fluorine and the fluorine and carbon, they link in a form that is extremely stable. And these um, uh, compounds have been used uh, and they are currently used for the manufacturing of, uh, for example, the non-stick surfaces that we have on pans, uh, electric insulation, adhesives, uh, food, pa food packaging, uh, firefighting equipment and chemicals and clothing. Uh, these, uh, these structures are very, very stable and they end up uh, bioaccumulating and they can be found everywhere. Uh, there is plenty of evidence for human toxicity of these substances, particularly affecting the liver and the reproductive system. Uh, many people, I guess, have seen the movie Dark Waters, which explains in a large measure, the impact of PFAS and, and the, the stir that has created in society. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, I would recommend watching the movie. Uh, PFAS limits and advisory levels are being imposed now in drinking water worldwide, and new regulations and legislations are evolving rapidly as uh, we learn more from, uh, from our research activities on their impact and persistence. Um, at ICFAR, we are developing innovative technologies for the destruction of PFAS in biosolids using pyrolysis technology, as you would expect. Uh, and we try to transform the biosolids into a biochar and make this material suitable to be used as a clean soil amendment material while achieving carbon sequestration at the same time. Um, and we are also utilizing natural biochars produced through pyrolysis of a variety of residual materials as effective and sustainable adsorbents um, to remove PFAS, but many, many other pollutants from wastewaters. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, I hope, it gives some ideas uh, to people now 
of what these PFAS are and the, the impact that they may have and the, the actions that we are taking to deal with them. Thank you so much, Franco, for that um, uh, overview of, of a very complicated and pervasive problem in, um, in our environment. And Nicole, what are some of the London Environmental Network's key priorities right now? And can you speak to some successful projects and share what has been most impactful? Yeah, definitely. So the London Environmental Network, we're a nonprofit environmental charity that works to protect the environment and build a more sustainable community in London and the surrounding area. And we have various key priorities, um, which are represented by the different programs that we run, including a program focused on helping local businesses set and then reach their sustainability targets, a program focused on replacing underutilized pavement and asphalt, um, and then replacing those spaces with pollinator and rain gardens, and the program that I manage, Greener Homes London, um, which provides resources, guidance, and tools to homeowners to help them create more sustainable homes. In terms of successful projects um, and what has been the most impactful, I can speak about two that Greener Homes did this past year. So the first is that we launched a residential rain garden pilot program where we worked with a number of London homeowners to install rain gardens on their property. And rain gardens are their aesthetically pleasing um, stormwater management tools that can help reduce the potential for flooding, um, reduce the quantity of pollutants that run from yards and roads straight into waterways, and they can help to restore and recharge the groundwater system. We also became an Energuide audit service provider at the end of the summer. Um, and Energuide audits are comprehensive assessments of a home from top to bottom. They're conducted by a registered energy advisor with Natural Resources Canada. The advisor will essentially collect data, model the home, and then offer a list of recommendations that will have the biggest impact if implemented. And Energuide audits are a great way to understand how a home is currently operating and then see what steps can be taken to make it more comfortable, efficient, and green. And we're also really excited to share a new project that we recently launched, which is called the Nonprofit Resiliency Project. And with this project, we'll be working with a number of nonprofit organizations that own multi-unit residential buildings in London um, to help them increase the sustainability of their buildings. And this project will actively promote energy justice and inclusion um, by focusing on underrepresented groups in the residential realm. And this will be very impactful for us and for the organizations, um, as these types of organizations often don't have the funds or the resources to be able to do this type of work on their own. So the hope is that we can come in um, and modify existing structures so that they can become more comfortable and efficient spaces and then increase the organization's resiliency. Okay, thank, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Um, so for our last question, we're going to reverse the order again. This time it will be Franco, Teresa, and then we will finish up with Nicole. And this question is, um, you know, is, is one that hopefully all of us can, you know, take away something uh, to put into action in our own lives. So what, what are some of the key actions that people can take in their everyday life to make a difference to combat climate change and protect the environment. So Franco, we're gonna start off with you. All right. Um, 
as I mentioned earlier, the first step is, uh, is to recognize that uh, any small individual contribution is magnified in, uh, in our community at the community level to make a huge impact. Uh, we are a community of over, I believe, 425,000 people. So every liter of water that we save by closing the tap when we brush our teeth or when we soap up in the shower corresponds to 425,000 liters of potable water that is saved. Every liter of water is magnified to that extent. Every kilo of trash that we don't uh, produce, that we don't put in the trash can, corresponds to 425 tons of trash that doesn't go to the landfill. So uh, what, what can we do? Well, we can do many things. We can start uh, source, uh, um, sorting our waste properly, and that will help uh, the city and uh, the management of the waste to recycle whatever is appropriate and, uh, and to send to the landfill only what is necessary. Uh, we have to start uh, changing our way of doing things and let's try to avoid packaging materials. Uh, let's try not to use single-use plastics. Uh, let's not waste paper. Uh, we, have, uh, we are using a lot of our computers and we should try to avoid printing uh, when it's not necessary. Uh, let's not waste water, as I said. Uh, let's uh, recognize that the decrease um, in temperature setting in our thermostat by one degree in the winter and an increase of one degree in the summer may save us between five and 10% of the use of energy. Uh, and still we, are, we can be comfortable. Um, we can uh, uh, take the habit of turning off the lights when we don't need them uh, and change the light bulbs to LEDs. Uh, they are more expensive, but it's a wealthy investment when you look at the energy consumption over time. And as I mentioned earlier, let's start walking more and using bicycles and public transportation and energy efficient vehicles. And maybe there can be incentives uh, created by the city of, uh, for example, free parking for EVs uh, downtown. Uh, let's let's uh, protect and enhance the green spaces that we have. Uh, so I, I gave basically a list of 10 10 points that I think we can act on uh, very, very easily uh, without much of an effort. We just need to make a, recognize that uh, this, this will make an, an impact. And we need to recognize clearly that any small action that we, that we can make can benefit from the, you know, what I would call the community effect and gets magnified 425,000 times. Franco, thank you. And uh, Teresa, I'd like to go to you for um, some of the key actions that you think people can take. Hi, wow, that was a big list. <laughs> Great list. <laughs> that was a good one. Um, mine are a little bit more general. Um, I guess even uh, uh, right from Dr. Baruti's first comment today, it was all about um, us educating ourselves. I really feel like we need to educate ourselves or ed educate yourself about uh, the issues and what's going on. And I would suggest a couple of things. 
Um, understanding the health of your own local uh, neighborhood, your you know environmental health of locally really makes a difference. I'm plugging the Upper Thames River Conservation Authority's report cards, which our report cards are in all the sub watersheds uh, in our jurisdiction. You can find your neighborhood and you can find out how well you're doing and from a water quality and a forest cover kind of situation and it actually has some specific actions that you can take that will make a difference in your neighborhood. Um, things like visiting the City of London's Climate Action Plan website, fantastic site in terms of giving you uh, wonderful information to educate yourself about the issues that are really impacting us here locally. Um, so educating yourself, getting involved. Um, it might be your neighborhood cleanup. Uh, it might be, you know, the uh, we're cleaning up in the spring or the fall. Um, it makes a huge difference in terms of, you know, uh, of whether it's waste management or again, what gets into the river. So these get involved. If there is a local group like, you know, the Friends of Stony Creek or your, um, your local uh, school may have another, uh, some kind of involvement that again, you can physically be doing things that again, cumulatively make that huge difference. Um, Last but not least, again, I will talk a little bit about stormwater. If you think about if everybody could manage the stormwater on your own property, we certainly wouldn't have the issues that we have with flooding and water quality issues. So is it a rain barrel? Is it a, um, a, a rain garden? You know, is there some ways that you can store that uh, runoff on your property and uh, decrease how quickly it gets into the Thames River? It will make a big difference. Uh, last but not least, advocate for, for the protection of wetlands and those natural areas. This is especially critical at the current, in our current political environment. Um, you know, legislation is currently being introduced that reduces the protection on those natural features. And without them, um, once they're gone, they're gone. And uh, we need to uh, protect those pieces. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, there's there's so much that can be done um, from within the home, from easy behavioral changes to small DIY projects that can make quite a difference. Um, but in terms of key actions for everyday living, some of the ones I've been thinking of have been said, but I will reiterate them because they are super important. Um, so just making the effort to minimize your impact for things that you're doing every single day. So remembering to turn off your lights, um, appliances, as well as electronics. Um, phantom power, which is when appliances and electronics are still draining energy, even when they're turned off, um, but they remain plugged in. That is quite a common problem, um, and we see this in a lot of Canadian households. So an easy tip is to just completely unplug them, or you can invest in power bars um, that can be easily turned off. You can also purchase ones that have timers, so they'll do it on their own. Um, actively trying to minimize your curbside waste is incredibly important. Um, successful composting can reduce the weight of your curbside garbage by 40% or even more. So that's a great option to look into. Um, if that's not feasible for you, alternatively, you could set household goals to reduce the amount of curbside waste that you're putting out for collection each week. Another great tip um, that I do in my everyday life is to make an inventory of um, the kitchen and other spaces such as the bathroom and then creating a list of necessities of things that I need before I go grocery shopping and then I stick to that list. 
Um, this prevents getting um, making any unnecessary purchases or duplicate purchases. You know, maybe you already have an item at home, but you've just forgotten about it. And try to utilize sustainable places such as Reimagine Co. Um, it's a package-free grocery store on Piccadilly and Richmond um, that sells natural and reusable items. Um, and also, this has been touched on too, um, replacing your incandescent light bulbs with LEDs is a major impactful and cost-effective way to promote energy efficiency. You can purchase these bulbs for um, a few dollars a piece. They're a little bit more expensive, but they are 80% more energy efficient um, than their counterparts. These have been some great lists. So thank you all. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks uh, to our panelists. And I see that the chat is filling up with um, a number of questions. So shall I just launch into them and, okay. Um, so the first one is from Holly and it's to um, Dr. So Dr. Baruti mentioned that London has the right demographics to become the most environmentally friendly city in Canada. What are some of the primary structural challenges in our community that prevent us from realizing this goal? So Franco, I'm going to let you attack that first. And if either of the other two panelists want to chime in afterwards, then we'll go with that. Uh, what I, uh, what I uh, really found impressive by visiting some of the um, cities in Northern Europe that uh, are famous for being recognized as the most green cities in the world is the amount of uh, the number of people that are on bicycles. And uh, one of the things that uh, one of the challenges that we have is to to organize our city with more bicycle lanes and more to make it more bicycle friendly. And to me, that uh, that will already well, it will make people think of what is the impact of uh, of uh, you know, these small contributions, and uh, and it will create a, a different uh, mindset um, and uh, at the same time will provide a health benefit. So I, I think uh, one of the structural changes that uh, is a bottleneck at the moment is uh, that our city is not uh, super friendly when it comes to bicycling. Okay, thank you, Franco. And would Nicole or Teresa, any thoughts? Any thoughts on some of the more, you know, the structural challenges of London and some of the, some of those barriers that need to be brought down to better action? I just wanted to add that I completely agree. Um, we get a lot of calls and a lot of inquiries at the London Environmental Network about transportation. Um, transportation just not being incredibly feasible in London right now. Um, it's not really bike friendly. There's a lot of um, construction that's going on that makes it really difficult for people to get places. So I think that's one major obstacle um, that we need to address. Okay. Um, so, uh, Teresa, if you, do, you want, do you have anything or shall I just go on to the next question? No, I just go on to the next question probably. Okay. <laughs> so um, what one thing would you offer to encourage people to take more, more care in London and to take more action. So is it a carrot, you know, is it a carrot or a stick? What are some of the things that 
that we might, you know, demand of our new city council to to get action. Any any thoughts on that from our panelists? I I guess I would jump in with um, I feel sometimes that a lack of action is is coming from this place of hopelessness. You know, or this you know really what my little thing is not going to make a very big difference. So. Um, I feel like we could encourage people by promoting some of the very uh, good stories, um, some of the very positive things that are happening. I've seen uh, communities get together and make differences in their own sub-watershed. So they, they get together, they work on many projects. All of a sudden we see a huge improvement in water quality in their creek or stream and in their neighborhood. We can show them that what they're doing is actually making a positive impact. I think people need to hear the positive side of things. The City of London is ahead of many municipalities in terms of what they've been doing with uh, combined sewers. It's a great story. They should be very proud of what they are doing. Um, we, don't we don't talk enough about the really good things that are happening. And I feel if, it, I think it's a little bit more motivating or you're feeling like, you know, we really can make a difference if we get on board. So I think uh, a little bit more positive, the positive side of what's happening might make a difference. Thank you for that. Franco or Nicole, do you have anything else? Yeah, to I, I agree. I, I, I think we need to talk about it. We, we, need, we need really to use uh, good examples and uh, kind of bombard people with uh, with success stories and uh, and there are so many and some are really exciting and, and we simply don't know about uh, we need to learn from what other communities have done and as i said let's not reinvent the wheel let's see what uh, what actions have been taken by helsinki by uh, copenhagen and uh, and uh, i think uh, people will start talking about it among themselves and uh, taking uh, small actions here and they are participating in community events maybe there could be i don't know competitions or billboards that are showing uh, in, in creating an incentive for people to talk about it thanks nicole did you have any thought you wanted to add no i agree with the with the other two panelists um i would just say too i think it's really important to actively speak about the reality of energy poverty as well. There's more and more households um, in London and in Canada that are experiencing energy poverty, spending more of their income on meeting their energy needs. Um, and I think just getting across the message that there's a lot of families, a lot of households that are struggling really um, makes it gets this collective mindset that there needs to be changes, um, especially for vulnerable individuals who may be more impacted um, and that things need to be done to lessen the impact of um, climate change. Okay, thank you, Nicole. So the next one, what funding opportunities are available through LCF to assist with implementing environmental initiatives? And Vanessa or Martha, you might be better positioned to chime in and, and uh, offer, offer your thoughts on this. I could chime in. We, we have our um, registry funding registry where it's open to any organization um, to apply it's a very simple um, application we've purposely done that 
We have our community vitality grants, which are larger, usually larger grants. Sorry, I, I missed a point there. The registry is we offer this to all our donors. Um, when they get to their granting season, uh, we make this available. And if there are people interested in the environment, we selectively go through and pull out all the environmental grants to make them available. Larger grants through Community Vitality that are the high impact grants that we make. Um, there is an application process that is always launched on our website and announced publicly. Um, we work collectively with our colleagues across the country to find out what they're doing. And with Community Foundations of Canada, there's often programs that are announced by the federal government that um, are available. We haven't seen an environmental one recently that, that we've been offered to participate in, but those are several opportunities. So it's, it is a grant process um, all the way around, but there is a, a good adjudication. And I know Marianne and, and several of you have been involved in this over the years to uh, make sure that we're getting money out into the environmental um, network in our in our community, but you know, as as Jerry had said, through this last couple of years, we've really ended up focusing a lot of our energy on um, social issues that that has have been impacted through um, COVID, but we really recognize that the environment is part of that whole network. And, you know, with the sustainable goals, it's, they're all entwined. So we, we have to recognize that. And that's why we focused in this vital signs report on the environment. So there's, there's opportunities, there's several doors to come in. And um, we always try and partner if we can with other organizations like the city or like, uh, you know, other community foundations or federal programs, provincial programs to leverage what we can do. So I hope that answers that question. Martha, thank you. And there was a very nice comment from the London Cycle Link and they express uh, gratitude for some money that has come their way from the London Community Foundation. So thank you, Martha, for, for going through those details. And maybe I could just jump in to do just to say one more thing uh, to add to Mar Martha's. Please use the resources that we put out, like uh, our vital signs, for example. You can go to the environmental section of, of that and you can get a list of what organizations are doing and are working on environmental issues. One click takes you to their web page where they, they tell you the things that you can do with them. Um, you can uh, uh, click on podcasts, uh, expert uh, testimonies and others that give uh, excellent advice. That's also how you can work with us is you can amplify uh, what we're putting out there. You can use your voice and you can come to events and things that we do and support people who are working on different causes that are really passionate for you. So use the resources we put out because that's why we put them out there. Jerry, thank you. 
So we probably have time for about one, one or two more questions. Um, someone has asked, how do we engage with how do we engage with the new city council to tackle some of the larger issues like that wetland protection? Many of the councilors have agreed that natural solutions are important. How do we get more trees planted in lower income neighborhoods when we have not been able to reach our tree planting goals in the last 10 years? Um, uh, you know, Nicole, you might, uh, you might have some insight into this. Um, yeah, just, just right off the bat, I would say um, try and find your ward counselor, um, get to know them, speak with them about the issues that you find that are important in your neighborhood. Um, I'm in Ward 11, so my city councilor is Skylar Frank, so I know who that is, um, and to engage with her about the issues that I find that are the most important um, for me um, as a citizen in Ward 11 outside of my job at LEN. I would also say, too, um, maybe this is just my perspective of being part of city council um, for the city of Sarnia. Um, but joining committees and joining, you know, getting to be with like-minded people to talk about the issues that you do find to be really important within the London community is super important. Um, the issues that I found to be really striking in Sarnia are different than what I find being in London. So finding those people, um, engaging with them, and then, you know, if you have committees and you're part of a different committee, that can be passed through to city council as well, um, and city staff can address those issues that way too. Thanks, Nicole. And Teresa, I just want to follow up on that wetland. I agree with you about the importance of wetlands and how when they're gone, they're done. So are, th are there any, you know, are there any public-private partnerships with different levels of government out there, like Ontario, Canada, other, you know, friends of, of the river? Are, are there any other organizations that you've seen sort of, you know, partner around wetland protection and, and put some real money? behind um, this issue? Uh, uh, off the top of my head, I'm going to have trouble because I feel like I'm not going to remember. I mean, there are a lot of advocacy groups um, and uh, whether it's uh, Nature Ontario or different groups that are all that will focus on protecting those areas, it becomes uh, a political issue. And I think it does start with your city councillors and locally to be able to say, this is what we feel is important in our community and important enough to protect. Um, but that's something that I can follow up on uh, Marianne and maybe send some information into Jerry so that it gets added into the resources on the vital signs. Thank you. Um, okay, and, and then we have one more question about how to get a green bin like like other municipalities. That's a very old, that's, I know that's a very old history or it goes back decades. Uh, Franco, was there anything else that you wanted to discuss on political engagement um, before I wrap it up with this? No, I, I, I raised my hand because I wanted to make one more point, which is uh, uh, the fact that uh, here we have, uh, I don't know, uh, 70 or 80 people attending this uh, this um, uh, conversation, it means that these people are committed and they are, I think we need to reach everybody else. Uh, the people that are not participating today, I, I think we have to make uh, an effort uh, to um, somehow become, uh, make these issues more visible and make the successes more visible to the people that uh, don't, necessarily pay too much attention. So I was uh, thinking, you know, as 
practical example, a big uh, uh, solar-driven panel at the entrance of, uh, of you know, as you, as you come into London from the 401, which is, you know, a place where many people go through. And this uh, panel will show the, the successes and the targets and how do we progress with that. I think that will, you know, it's just an example for reaching out people that are not necessarily committed uh, to participate in discussions, but they will see it and they will start thinking about it. And if we clearly state some goals, you know, this is our carbon footprint today, we want to reduce it to this level, let's work on it. And so people will start thinking and they will get into finding the information on how to get there. I think basically the point is reach out. We need to reach out the people that are not committed. That's an excellent way to end our panel discussion. Thank you all so much for participating and spending this hour with us today. Jerry, thank you too for adding. And I think what Franco is talking about is great. I really do think that measurable goals are extremely important in getting anywhere um, with, with climate change and environmental issues. And certainly, our website is improving in terms of how we measure um, environmental issues and any feedback from the community about more data points that we can include in this um, would be of value, I think, for us as a foundation group uh, moving forward. What a, an amazing, vital conversation. Thanks to uh, panelists. I was absolutely glued. And you know, Franco, uh, I'm going to surprise you. We had 120 guests today, but they so even more people can go out and amplify uh, the messages they want. Thanks, Martha and the London Community Foundation. Um, thank you, Marianne, for a wonderful job. And thanks to all our guests who attended. A reminder, please have a peek at uh, bethechangelondon.ca and any feedback is helpful, just as Marianne was saying. Thanks all. Have a fantastic day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What Lenin Can Be. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca forward slash what Lenin can be. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for listening to us.